Hey everybody, Rick here. Before we get started, I know that this is the day after the election, and as I'm recording this, several states are still tallying up their votes. There's a chance that we'll find out who won the Electoral College tonight, and if we don't, we'll probably know by the end of the week. I do want to just quickly encourage you all to be patient. There's a lot of misleading claims and straight-up misinformation being shared on social media right now, even by Christians and even by influential Christians. And when Christians repeat alarmist claims that aren't true, it makes the church look bad. Now, on to the actual episode. You're listening to the Christian Civics Podcast, exploring how the gospel empowers us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. I'm your host, Rick Barry, the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Christian Civics, and this is the second-to-last episode in a mini-series exploring what, to me, are some of the secretly scariest passages of the Gospels. These are the passages of the Synoptic Gospels that give me the most pause, make me reflect the most about my own moral character, my own spiritual health, and especially the passages that make me reflect about those things in ways that I don't think I'm challenged to often enough in my church life. So these are the things that are scary because they're a lot more ambitious in the way that they frame up what sin or discipleship or spiritual growth might mean for me. This is maybe going to be a slightly shorter episode than the other ones, if only because the thing that's scary about this passage is probably a little more straightforward and probably a little easier to articulate. It can require less unpacking or less contextualization or less exposition to get the point across. If you've ever been to one of our classes, you've probably heard me refer to Galatians 3 or Colossians 3, Paul's declarations that there is no man or woman, Jew or Greek, free or slave, all are one in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when we bring those verses up here at CXC, we're usually talking about how for any church in the U.S. to live up to what the church is called to be, that church has to have a congregation full of people who relate to one another across huge cultural divides, cultural divisions that the surrounding community thinks are uncrossable. Pastor Charles Drew, who helps shape our curriculum and teaches classes for us, describes it as a church that the pundits can't explain away. But that vision of man or woman, Jew or Greek, free or slave, all are one in Christ Jesus, that's just the aspirational side of our calling. The Bible doesn't just give us something to aspire to. It also gives us a cost to count. The passage we're going to look at today is from the book of Matthew, chapter 10, verses 34 through 40. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be the members of his household. The one who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and the one who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and the one who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. The one who has found his life will lose it. And the one who has lost his life on my account will find it. These are the words of our Lord. The Galatians passage and the Colossians passage talk about our social standing. 
where we fit into the society around us, how other people view us, and how we view others in comparison to ourselves. Those passages talk about the things that were the biggest cultural divides of the time, maybe akin to something like Bush supporter or Bernie bro, which is the way I phrased it at our launch event four years ago. There was a phrase at the time common among the Pharisees, God, thank you for making me a man, not a woman, a Jew, not a Greek, and free, not a slave. To be in the church meant entering into relationships without those barometers, without those divisions, without those distinctions. Letting go of the things that made you think of someone as more or less valuable, more or less respectable, more or less credible, or more or less worthy of honor and deference. But this passage from Matthew, it's not just about how we understand others, it's about how we understand ourselves, where we get our identity, and what we value existentially. In first century Israel and the surrounding areas, cultures that, for a lack of a better term, I can call right now traditional cultures or familial hierarchical cultures, which I don't think is a real sociological term, but works for our purposes. In cultures like that, who you were largely came from your family lineage. Think about how two of the apostles are called sons of Zebedee, or how two out of the three synoptic gospels start with genealogies. To the people who were receiving the gospels in the original epistles, their family lineage wasn't just about where they fit in in society. It was about who they were, who they belonged to, what their identity was. Dividing a man from his father didn't mean making Thanksgiving dinner less harmonious. It meant making a deliberate break from the things that the cultural stew you were swimming in said should define you. And this kind of reordering of the way you think about yourself, your clan, your family, your most formative relationships, and the things your culture says define you and order your life, the tribes you most identify with or most behave like, these massive breaks with how the society around us tells us we should order our inner lives do feel like death when we commit to them. Jesus doesn't say he came to divide a man from his father and they'll never love one another again. He says he came to divide a man from his father, so the man who comes to him is not to put his father in a higher place in his heart than Jesus. Putting to death the old life for first century Jews meant putting more stock in the men and women, Jews and Greeks, free people and slaves that they were finding in their new church. Putting more stock in those relationships than they put in their family. But we're not in a familial hierarchical society. For us, what does making a similar break look like? Well, it varies. Region by region, person by person, it's different. That's the frustrating thing about being in a more individualistic society. Instead of committing ourselves to our family identity, we each get to commit ourselves to whatever tribe seems right in our own eyes. But there are some ways we can tell. If you're a believing Christian in the U.S., there are a couple questions I've been considering that I think help make this passage more practical for me. I'm going to share them now and encourage you to take some time to reflect on them yourself. You can also find them on our website, christiancivics.org, starting on Thursday morning when the transcript of this episode goes up. First, take some time to think about the people who are closest to you. 
the people who are maybe in your inner circle, so to speak. Some of them might be family. Some of them might be friends or some kind of mentor or colleague. Either way, think about the five or six people you're closest to or who shape you the most and ask yourself what most of those people have in common. And I'm not talking about just the fact that, well, these are all people I like or people I trust. Ask yourself, what are the things that, with maybe one or two token exceptions, make most of these people similar to one another? It could be something like their education level or who they voted for or their income levels or their cultural background or class signifiers, what generation they're part of. Then think about the people in your church and ask yourself similar questions about them. What do I think the majority of people in this congregation have in common besides Christian faith? Not every single person here, but maybe the majority of them. What are the general trends and the general culture of this group of people? What do most of these people have in common besides the church? Is it something about the way they think, the way they behave, the kind of work they do, how they were raised, whether they're parents, the things they love, the things they hate? The answer to these questions will tell us a lot. They might help reveal to us the ways in which we still love our other tribes more than we love Christ, or the ways that we're still trying to form a church that is only men, or only Jews, or only the free. The questions about our congregation will also help us start to understand ways in which our church may be accidentally reinforcing those tribal identities for us, rather than equipping us to make those tribal identities secondary to our Christian identity, and ultimately challenge them, refine them, redeem them with our Christian identity. The ways we might be creating church communities that teach us to stay the way we are, rather than challenging us with a vision for how Jesus wants us to change. They might reveal ways in which we're accidentally acting like Peter in the book of Acts, who was sending non-Christians the message that to become a Christian, they didn't have to just become Christian. They also had to become Jewish, like Peter was. They had to start conforming to a culture besides the missionary culture of the gospel. Working through these questions might help us develop a better vision for how our congregation can live up to the calling to be a place where there is no man or woman, no Jew or Greek, no Bush supporter or birdie bro, but all actually are one in Christ Jesus. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are the God who calls all people of every tribe and tongue and teaches us to sing your praise. Wherever we come from, you graft us into a new identity, what scripture calls the new man, and you send us back into the world as ambassadors, as emissaries, as foretastes and missionaries of your coming kingdom. It's not wrong to love the tribes we come from, but help us to discern our own hearts, to separate love of you from love of man, and teach us to live as lights to the people we are already most sympathetic to. Teach us to be salt to the part of the earth that we already think of as home, to be witnesses and prophets to the people we already think are doing a pretty good job of living the way we want to see people live. We probably talk about government and politics in ways that leave people confused about your gospel. Everyone needs redemption, even our political allies. Everyone reflects your image and is hard-afflicted even our political opponents. 
but we don't speak that way and we don't think that way and we don't react to people like that's true. That compromises what you're trying to do in this world and for the ways in which we have been stumbling blocks, we ask you to forgive us for Jesus' sake. We pray for our hearts, we pray for our relationships, and we pray for our churches. Make these local gatherings of Jesus' body into places we can go to learn sympathy for the people we want to fight and where we can learn to be skeptical of the people we hope will emerge victorious. We pray these things because they will make us better at the responsibility you have given us, the responsibility of being some of the stewards of a representative democracy. But also because if you make these things true in us, it will make your son more visible to others and it will bring glory to his name. And that is the reason we pray. Amen. Thank you all very much for joining us. That's it for this episode. We'll be back again with the last episode in this miniseries at the end of the week.